good to be with you again. After nearly three months away, I would once again direct your attention to 1 Kings. Today I'm going to read verses 1 through 30a of chapter 20. Now that's a little bit awkward, but the break there, as is evident in most English translations, uh, comes more appropriately uh, at the particular place that we will stop today. Don't be phased by that. It's just a good division, and we'll be dealing with uh, quite a bit as it is, and certainly a sufficient amount of Scripture. But we're coming to that beginning of the events, really, of what we defined on the 4th of July, if you were here, as the apprenticeship of Elisha. He's had the mantle of the prophetic office laid upon him by Elijah. And as I noted, there's about a six-year period in which he will intern, if you will, under the outgoing Elijah until he is taken up into heaven. And we noted that he would see during that period some, depending upon what angle he was viewing it, very disturbing things. He would see a lot of bad, but also the good of God overriding it. And we come here to the first of three battles that are recorded, two here and then the third one, which will ultimately, as you know, spell the end of the house of Ahab in chapter 22. But as we approach these challenging and um, active verses, wherein there is a great deal of content for us, we need to keep in mind that in all that is happening, God is being covenantally faithful to his people to bless them and to do with great precision precisely what he has committed himself to doing per his promises. And so without further ado, let's now give our attention to 1 Kings 20, verses 1 through 30a. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble, for he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions, and they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. 
And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts, went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen, and the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come against, up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. This is a lot. Let us look to God in prayer for His Spirit's assistance. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for not only the historical truth that we find herein, but truth for our soul's sanctification and growth. We pray that you would, as we consider in the coming moments, you would give us just something of a glimpse of your glory, of your grace, and of your love that we find in this great passage. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Old Testament narrative is indeed challenging. I was thinking the other day about how I have enjoyed in the providence of God being able at different times to travel around and to visit some of the newer baseball stadiums, you know, that are they're termed throwbacks. They're state-of-the-art architecturally, but they follow the designs of the pre multi-purpose stadiums way back in the day that supposedly had more character. And sometimes you sit in these places like Oriole Park at Camden Yards or Chase Field in Phoenix, and, and, and you, you study them, and, and there are certain things that strike you as idiosyncratic. And why is one foul pole farther out than the other? What were they thinking when they designed it that way? Or why is there more foul territory in this stadium than in others? And you can't quite figure it all out, but it, it's beautiful to you as you survey it. There's something about the structure of it that lends itself to an enjoyable experience. And that's sort of the way you feel when you approach passages such as the one that we have just read. You wonder why we're told certain things that we are. You may wonder about other things that we're not told, but questions arise in your mind, and you scratch your head sometimes. But in the final analysis, as the Spirit works, you're just struck by the wonder of it all. You are thankful for the beauty of it, and God is pleased to give you an experience through it whereby he shows you that it is his good pleasure to be faithful to 
his people. That's essentially what we find here. Even though it's wartime, we find a continuance of God's favor. We find his provision for his people as he calls them to respond aright to that favor. And we find a width of liberality with which he calls all men freely and continually to submit to him by virtue of his showcasing his power as the only true and living God. All of those who bear his image are thereby summoned to this one to have faith in him, this one who is just and yet who is also merciful. I've titled today's message, All is Just and Merciful in God's War. That's a little bit of a play on words from a familiar mantra or saying that you've heard over the years. People will say, all's fair in love and war, and when you break that down, it really is only an attempt at a justification for a lack of love or fairness. But if you paraphrase and work with that and tweak it, you can come to something great like the reality that all is just and merciful in God's war. Oh, yes, these are battles here in 1 Kings 20 and over in the 22nd chapter. But they depict something of a victory that comes in a larger war, and that is God's good pleasure in defeating the specific enemy of sin and doing it through the perfect warrior, the sinless prophet who has all wisdom, and the righteous king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate to bear that in mind, certainly as we come to his table this morning. So amidst all of life as we move through it, even in times of warfare and suffering or whatever we might be facing, for the one who trusts in the Lord, he is faithfully giving his grace to them, building up saving faith in them unto obedience, and he never fails in any aspect of his covenant allegiance. We find that there is a a deep threshold, if you will, to the way in which God utilizes even what to us is minutia in the fulfillment of his promises and the deliverance of his people. So there's excitement here in the detail. We don't understand it all, and yet we revel in it, and it strikes us as something that is not common, that is not cookie-cutter, that is not altogether symmetrical, but is nevertheless beautiful and necessary. So there are three things, essentially, that I want to highlight this morning as we look at this text, as we consider during this period of Ahab's continued disobedience, and yet the way in which revelation, the revelation of God is fixed against it in opposition to it, that even in this episode brings him to actually be more obedient. This one with whom we associate cowardice is actually showing more courage than he has to date at this point. And it may be the last time that we can admire him in some way, but God will give to him, as he has dealt with other figures in redemptive history, justly, such as Moses. But God's grace even extends beyond the sins of the appointed and anointed ones, and he uses them to deliver his people and to be merciful to them as he maintains what is just for his law and his standard, but also does not give to those to whom he is covenantally committed precisely what they deserve. And that's our only hope. We've seen that at many turns throughout the Lord's word, wherever you are, Old Testament or new, his commitment to doing well by us, even though we don't deserve it, is our only hope. Another thing to bear in mind as we come today to sup with him. But the first thing I want us to notice, principally in the first 22 verses, and again in texts like this, there's always some thematic overlap as you're dealing with it. But I want us to see the wonder of God's favor, very simply and yet profoundly, the awesomeness of how it is that God consistently favors his people, though they don't deserve it. Ahab is the son of Omri. 
and his father had set up this area of Samaria as a kind of capital in high elevations before Ahab's reign. And there is a period in which, at some point, the Syrians are hired, if you will, by a king in the south named Asa to bring harassment against a king in the north named Baasha. And that began, that's really where the, the tensions began between these two nations. The Assyrians are also growing in power to the north, and the Syrian king Ben-Hadad is looking to the south, and he's seeing that Israel could pose a potential problem, and so he wants to shore up, in essence, the southern flank and hopefully only have problems on one front instead of two, and thus ensues these battles that are before us. But again, we know that there's a greater purpose in the providence of God. It's interesting how those verses that you think are not as important often are the ones that continue to ring in your ears. Remember back a couple of sermons ago when we noted the details of verses 15 through 17 in chapter 19 of who would assume certain offices. There are three individuals there, and there's a man named Hazael who's predicted to be the Syrian king. He will be the successor to this Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad II, who will fall ill, and uh, at his request, his servant Hazael will go to Elisha and ask him about his future, and then will return to him and will actually smother him and assume the throne. And so there's a lot of tension here, but all because God is intent upon delivering both justice to those who sin against him and mercy towards those who humble themselves and bow before him and do his bidding. So here he is, Ben-Hadad, who I believe uh, will uh, be instrumental in uh, some things that are often not taken note of during his reign, but he is the one appointed at this time and is bringing a force against, with 32 kings, the Sumerian region. And he sends messengers into the city and... It doesn't appear as though it's going to be war at first. I mean, when you read the first few verses, it strikes you that his initial intent maybe is to take care of Israel in the south through what in our day we might term uh, diplomacy. Uh, Let's talk first. Let me see if I can cut a deal with you and get you to do what I want you to do, and then I won't attack you. And so the first set of demands is gold, silver, best wives, and children. And Ahab is is willing to forego those. But then there's a second set of demands in verse 6. He's going to come tomorrow, his servants will, and going to inquire about other things. And this is just plain meanness. They're going to go throughout in illegal searches and seizures and find what you live in your homes and take that. And of course, when Ahab gets wind of the second demand he doesn't like it. He's willing to consent to the first, but he concludes via the advice of his counselors that he will send a message to Ben-Hadad and tell him that all that he demanded at first he's willing to do, but that which he demanded in the second category of demands he cannot do and Probably he knows at this juncture that this is basically a declaration of war. Ben-Hadad is not pleased. And so he gives a very Jezebel-like response, does he not, in verse 10. The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people. That's pretty confident. He's in essence saying, if I don't wipe you off the map... And if I don't leave you uh, so much as a lack of dust that every one of those who follow me won't even have a handful, uh, that, I mean, that's confidence. Uh, That's arrogance. And you have to admire the way in which Ahab is able to respond rather uh, cleverly. Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Don't count your victories, Ben-Hadad, before they've been won. But he knows at that point that war is at hand, 
and the confidence of Ben-Hadad is such that he goes into the bars and he begins to drink with all of the kings, exhorting them to take their positions, and he believes he has this thing won. Now, the prophet comes into play. We have three prophet appearances here. We're not sure whether it's the same individual, verse 13, verse 22, and verse 28. In verse 13, we have a prophet. In verse 22, we have the prophet. And then in verse 28, we have a man of God. It doesn't really matter. It's not of primary concern whether this is the same individual. But the point is that God's appointed one to give the proper message to Ahab and to Israel at the right time is present. The one they need is there. And we have in verse 13... Words that are the first part, if you will, of an inclusio that ends in verse 28. He says at the end of verse 13, And you shall know that I am the Lord. Again in verse 28, And you shall know that I am the Lord. These prophetic figures, be they the same person or different ones, bookend both the beginning of, as it were, the first war and preparations for the second with this great statement that ultimately what is at stake is the honor of the Lord. Have you seen this great multitude, he says, and Ahab is responding to him there, by whom, verse 14, he said, thus says the Lord, by servants, of the governors of the districts, will he give this great multitude into his hand? That very day, who shall begin the battle, he asks. He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts. Some translations have the word leader there. I think servants is good because it's more indicative of those who have not had the military training that one would expect to go into battle. You see, this is what we often see in the history of conflicts between God's people and the enemies. Remember in Judges chapter 7, much like Gideon, Gideon had been required to divest himself of warriors before fighting the Midianites. And we read in 1 Samuel 17.33 uh, that when David faced Goliath that the battle was the Lord's. So Yahweh has a track record of taking away from his people anyone who could get the credit for what he will actually do. And this is very important because verses 2 and 5 indicate what saith Ben-Hadad. Verses 13 and 14, it's thus saith the Lord. He is usurping the power that belongs only to him and ensuring victory for his people. It's also interesting to note that the statement, and you shall know that I am the Lord, you, at the end of verse 13, is in the singular. You, in verse 28, is in the plural. And so there is an expansion of God's intention in terms of his driving his power to deliver home first to the king and those around him, but then to the 7,000, to the, the citizen soldiers, to use a term of Dr. Paul Long. He's going to go wide and throughout his body politic and assure them that he is Lord, and by virtue of that he deserves to be honored. So at noon, we have things getting underway. He's drinking himself under the table, Ben-Hadad is, and he's not taking this very seriously. You look at verse 18, and it's almost humorous and odd what he says. If they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. That clearly is a statement of someone who's inebriated because it makes no sense. And so the battle actually happens in verse 20, each struck down his own man. Each man got his own man, literally, is what that means. And the Syrians fled. And even though Ahab looks good going down and striking the horses and chariots and the Syrians with a great blow, he somehow is witless enough to let Ben-Hadad get away. We wonder what the 
generals would say in their assessment of that, but nonetheless, God has come through. He has been faithful to his people. And I simply suggest to you that in all of this, we see the wonder of his great favor. That he is the one who has done it all. Thus says the Lord, have you seen this great multitude? Again, verse 13, I will give it into your hand this day. I will give it into your hand this day. I love those words we sung moments ago in that great Isaac Watts hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, the second stanza. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. He is the one who must win the battle, as Luther said, and he, he does. And so what we see with this, ultimately, I believe, is the wonder of God's pursuit that he is for sinful people. And because of this, he pursues them continually. This has all happened because it was God-ordained, prophet-initiated, and king-implemented. You see that? We have a prophet we don't know. We have a less-than-righteous king. And yet God is still fulfilling his salvific decree by delivering his people. And this ought to point us again, as we walk into the New Testament, to the one who is all of that. He is the God who has ordained it. He is the prophet by whose word we know the will of God for our salvation. And he is the king far superior to Ahab, who is perfect and who offers himself once and for all a living sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And again, we can cite, we could spend all afternoon looking at the ways in which this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, shows the wonder of his favor in such personal, tactile very palpable ways. I think, for example, of his approaching the Samaritan woman, a woman from this very region, centuries later, at the well and asking her for water. And just look at what he knows about her. I mean, he knows how many husbands she's had, and he knows that the one she's living with at this point is not her husband, and, and she is attempting to hang in there as best she can in her conversation with him. And she finally says, well, we know that the Messiah is coming in one day, and he will teach us all things. Jesus looks right at her and says, I who speak to you am he. That's the war victor, personally coming right to individual people, or Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, as Jesus moves through Jericho, he calls out to him. He's up in a sycamore tree to get a look at Jesus, this little short man. And he says, hurry and come down, Zacchaeus, for I must stay at your house today. And the people didn't like that. They groaned because this one is going to be the guest of a sinner. And he tells Jesus that he has given half of what he has as goods to the poor and he will repay fourfold all of those whom he has cheated. And Jesus declares, does he not? Salvation has come to this house this day, since this is the son of Abraham. And then what does he say? For the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. And this historic text has that written all over it. God is seeking, he is pursuing those who without him will be lost, and he delivers them. And he does it beautifully, and he does it wondrously so as to show his power and to continue to give to his people what they need. Now, in verse 22, we have a little extra special blessing, I believe. The prophet comes to the king of Israel, Ahab, again, and he says, if it's the same person, he says, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come against you. Now, now wouldn't that be great? If we had prophets in our day as we're going through a, pro a problem or a trial or anything who would tip us off to the fact that in a matter of months this is going to be a problem again. Uh, now God doesn't speak that way today prophetically. But isn't it encouraging to know that once he did, and because he did, we can look back at that and we can know that there is not only a divine awareness of what is coming, 
but a divine commitment to giving what is necessary in order that we may face what is coming. There has been a great sovereign victory, but now we see a call to ongoing essential vigilance. God is in essence saying to his people, I am your deliverer, but you have to stay on watch and you have to be looking to me as the one who will deliver you in the future. So grace comes and it keeps on coming. Here we have favor piled on, if you will. One is not just snatched from the throes of death, but is given what is necessary to know in order to live such that you continue to experience such deliverance. Uh, Years ago, the late Roland Hill, who pastored for many years at a large church, had a rich man, very wealthy man in his church, and several poor people, and the rich man took an interest in one of the poor individuals, and he came to Pastor Hill, and he said, I have a large sum of money that I wish to give to this individual. Should I give it to him in lump sum, or should I dole it out over time? And Pastor Hill said, don't worry about it. Give me the money, and I'll take care of it. And the pastor sent the poor man this note, which said, with five pounds attached, there is more to follow where this came from. And every few months came a remittance to the poor man from Hill with those words, more to follow where this came from. Uh, Verse 22 of 1 Kings 20 is there that you and I may know that this is a God who continues to give more by awakening and making wise his people to that which will come. And We don't have to have specifics. We know in a fallen world that things are hard. We've all been through hard things. We'll be going through difficult challenges until our last day upon the earth. But this is the kindness of God, such extensiveness in his grace. This is the grace that keeps on giving, and we see it here in this wondrous favor in this wartime account. Now, the second thing that I want us to note here is the requisition for and the responsibility of man's soul. Moving past the literal delivery of bodies in the flesh and the destruction of enemies in wartime, it's incumbent upon us to think about the spiritual implications of this. And one of the great tensions among those who love the doctrines of grace is they were beginning to embrace them. I think for virtually everyone with whom I've ever had a discussion about this, there's that, uh, that thing that's difficult in squaring the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man. God is sovereign, but God has created man to respond to him aright in a certain way to live within those provisions that God has made. Even before the fall, to, to sit in the garden pre-sin, And to look at the beauty of it, God's intent was to awaken, to keep Adam awake and moving toward an enjoyment of his transcendent majesty and his beneficence. And of course, with the fall happening, this continues, but it's much more difficult for men. There are complications, as we know. But what I want us to see here is what we know to be true, that the God who requires is also the God who gives. St. Augustine said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And there is a requisition by God that is concurrent with the responsibility that he places upon man. Uh, When we speak of a requisition, we're talking about authority that gives to someone inferior that which they need to respond aright. So the great requisition is faith itself. The proper response is the exercising of that faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. And that is the gift of God, the whole phrase, For by grace you have been saved through faith, even the faith is a gift. God requires faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but only He can give it. 
And praise God that He does in His calling of us to seek the means of grace, to engage in repentance ongoingly, and to continue to use all of the means at our disposal to receive Christ's communication of the benefits of His redemption. Faith is given in order that it may be exercised. And I think in verses 26 and 27, and even into verse 29, we see something of this in the literal unfoldings on the ground. Notice with me, for example, that in verse 26, In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. He's coming against Israel as he did in the beginning, of which we read, in verse 1b. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. They encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And of course, later in verse 29, and they encamped opposite one another seven days. That's an action taken by both sides. I want you to see something here. I want you to see God's provision of what can be defined as faith, readying his people to express that in their presence. The first two verbs in verse 27 are what we call in the Hebrew uh, nifals or passives. Notice what it reads. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned. You know, it doesn't say that uh, they mustered themselves and provided for themselves. No, they were equipped with what was needed right in the place that it was needed in order that they may respond actively by going against, by encamping, and by readying themselves to go to the actual battle. And I suggest to you that this is a great depiction spiritually of what God does for his people. When he gives you faith, he's taking you to the place of the battle. He's giving you what you need and he's giving you grace to exercise it as we see here. Notice how there's a picture of, of, of seemingly unwinnable circumstances here. They're taken to this affect. They're going to be fought. They're going to be fighting in the providence of God. And the people were mustered, were provisioned. They're given all that they need by God, and they go against. They encamp before Ben-Hadad and company, and they they look like two little flocks of goats. Uh, There's this diminutive language. They're there in faith, but they're so small. And this is God setting things up such that they have what they need. They see His greatness. They see the greatness of the enemy. They are small, and yet they are in position, possessing what they need, faith, and showing that faith by trusting, by being present, by heeding God's call, being ready to encamp to go out against and to fight. This is the bridge of sorts that we find in the passage. This has always been the way of God, to give His people what they have to have to respond to right. I think of another passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, in the midst of the exile in Babylon, God says in verses 8 through 11 of Ezekiel 36 to his people, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branch and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you. I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and I will do more good to you than ever before. And that was to say, the same refrain we find in First Kings, then you will know that I am the Lord. That's always God's aim, that His people and those beyond His people will know His honor and glory and know that He is the Lord. Just just look at the fullness of that. You talk about being mustered 
and being provisioned. I mean, there it is. I will do more good to you than ever before. And then you come to the end of that chapter, verse 36, and in verse 37, chapter 36, verses 37 and 38, thus says the Lord, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. He's going to allow them to ask. You see, He's given them faith, and then He's going to position them to, by His grace, exercise that faith in a request that they be numerous. And that same God before that time has here defeated the enemy of his people for expressly those same purposes. Faith brings you to that place where you're helpless. It clears the way to make you totally dependent upon the sayings of God, the commitments of your Creator, the works of your Redeemer, and the power of your Sustainer. And there is that inextricable link and the peace of God knowing that you can obey and you will respond with what He requires precisely because He has been pleased to give you the instrument whereby to do so. Uh, Nicholas Ridley was burned, as you know, with Hugh Latimer at the stake on October 16, 1555. Latimer shortly before then, had written the following, Faith is a noble duchess. She hath ever her gentleman usher going before her, the confessing of sins. She hath a train after her, the fruit of good works, walking in the commandments of God. He who believes will not be idle. He will walk. He will do his business. Have ever the gentleman usher with you. So if you will try faith, remember this rule, Consider whether the train is waiting upon her. And here we have our God, who is the great provider, who shows favor to his people, giving unto them precisely what they need and thereby causing them to respond aright. They are responsible and victorious precisely because of God's requisition of faith in their hard hearts to the end of victory. And the Old Testament scholar Gary Enrig has summed it up very appropriately in this word. When the nation and the king had listened to God's people and followed his word, it was then that they experienced his victory. But then finally, we have what might be termed the breadth of God's concern, the width, the depth any adjective that you wish to use to showcase the dimensions of it. Notice what happens in verses 23 through 25. We have God issuing a great corrective of two things, both A, poor military thinking, but more importantly, bad theology. Now, these Syrians who are under the leadership of Ben-Hadad, they reconnoiter and they begin to do a post-first battle analysis. And what do they come up with? Three things in verses 23 through 25. First of all, they somehow foolishly decide uh, that Yahweh is a God who does better on mountaintops. And so we can take him down in valleys or on plains. This is their own kind of strategic defense initiative, but it's not very smart. Then secondly, we see also that... Um, we better remove those vassals who didn't fare very well in the, in the last battle and put real commanders and warriors in. That'll, that'll help us win this time. And then also, even though there were great numbers before, there need to be greater ones. And so when we fight against them in the plain, we're going to do so horse for horse and chariot for chariot, which basically is a phrase that is descriptive of of a call for greater numbers. We simply need more power. We need more manpower if we're going to be victorious again. And then the third appearance of a man of God 
in verse 28. He comes near and tells Ahab this. They've concluded that your God is a God of the hills, but not of the valleys. And notice that's because of that foolishness. He says, therefore, the prophet of the Lord has stated, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you, the entire community of Israel, shall know that I am the Lord. It's a great corrective. And this is the breadth that God's favor reaches out into all quarters and it uses anything to protect and to empower and to equip His people to glorify Him. There's also another extension of his favor when we see that as the Syrians are defeated, even though Ben-Hadad gets away, God's not finished with him and his purposes. This shows others in the world watching that not only does Israel's God want Israel to honor him, but he wants all peoples to honor him. He is a God who has created, he has spoken into existence all of those who bear his image and And he desires that all of them worship and serve him. So in wiping out the Syrians, uh, there's a message that the Assyrians or other people around in the region could take. They could say, whoa, this is the Lord God and we ought to bow to him. As many others have done in the past or as others would do in the future after this. We think of Nebuchadnezzar. God has been pleased to reach out to all quarters and correct error and turn foolishness on its ear for the blessing of all people. And so I think that as we come to the Lord's table, this is uniquely appropriate as we consider how God is capable of taking even wrong strategic thinking militarily, but also poor doctrine from even among dim-witted pagans. And even within the church, we're not immune to this. We see him century after century issuing these correctives so as to protect his people and so as to show himself to any who would see his work that he alone is the Lord and deserves to be honored and glorified. For all the heavens are his, the earth and all therein, the world and all that is in it, the psalmist says in Psalm 18, or rather 89, 11, for he has founded them. Not only is he the founder, but he is the one who uses. Nothing stands in his way, not even my errors, or my sins, or your sins, as we come today and confess them at His table. And people everywhere can observe the destruction of Israel's enemies and bow the knee, even as they see that this same God's victory in the ultimate war over death, hell, and the grave is prevalent for all who would believe. And so, as we look at the work of God long ago, and as we consider the work of God over time, as we gather at His table and survey the works of God in Christ, we can see great details as well. Precision to the lengths to which He goes, in order that ultimately we too, as is God's desire for His people Israel, can go forth because we know He alone is Lord and God over all kings and honor Him in the world. John Bunyan once surveyed the great work of the Lord under the ultimate aim of Him receiving honor in the world, and he wrote this, Christ has put Himself under the term of physician. Consequently, He has desired that His fame as to the salvation of sinners may be spread abroad, that the world may see what He can do. And to this end, He has not only commanded that the biggest sinners should have the first offer of His mercy, but has, as the physicians do, put out his bills and published his doing, that things may be read and talked of. Yea, he has moreover in these his blessed bills, the Holy Scripture, I mean to say, has inserted the very names of persons, the paces of their souls, and the great cures 
that by the means of salvation he is wrought upon them by this very end. Here is such a one by my grace and redeeming blood was made a monument of everlasting life, and such a one by perfect obedience became an heir of glory, and they there he produced their names. He saved Lot from guilt and damnation that he had procured to himself. He saved David from vengeance that belonged to him for committing adultery and murder. Here is Solomon, Manasseh, Peter, Mary Magdalene, and many others made mention of in his book. Yea, here are their names, their sins, and their salvation recorded together, that you may read and know what a Savior he is and do him honor in the world. And as the great warrior for his people, the one who does what is just by maintaining righteousness in the destruction of his enemies, and the one thereby who shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. He is victor. He is Savior. And it is incumbent upon us to go forth and do this Savior honor in the world. May we pray. Father, we're grateful that by Your Spirit You apply ancient truths to our souls and encourage us. We're grateful for the record that You have given to us We're thankful that you have not left us in darkness concerning you or ourselves, but that you give us faith and you enable us to exercise the faith that you give. And we ask that as we come to your table that you would enable us not only to name our sin, not only to state our need for salvation yet again, but to be sure that you, the one who know all things, what's coming in the spring, as was told to Ahab, what is coming in the future, all of those things over which you are sovereign, you have made the way and provided that which is necessary for us to trust you, to ingather wherever we have to, to experience your blessing as we exercise faith. And so we ask that you would deliver us this day from the throes of the enemy of our souls, that you would cause us to look unto Jesus and to realize that he, the Alpha and the Omega, who was dead, is now alive and alive forevermore. And he holds the keys to death in Hades. And so we thank you, our great victor, that you are the one who has won the ultimate war at Calvary. And may we look to you, may we turn all things over to you, and honor you by security in the knowledge that as our victor, you will always guide, guard, protect, and preserve unto eternal life. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.